Hi, we're here from Curiosity.com to help you get smarter in just a few minutes. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, you learn about bioprinting from Zach Wienersmith, creator of the Saturday Morning Breakfast Serial webcomic. You'll also learn about an ancient underground city and why amateur aerial photography isn't as new as you might think it is. Let's satisfy some curiosity. Researchers are working on ways to create 3D printed organs. And if that sounds complicated, you're right. Today, we're diving into the science of bioprinting in the second half of our interview with special guest Zach Wienersmith. He's the cartoonist behind the popular geek webcomic Saturday Morning Breakfast Serial and co-author of the new book Soonish, 10 Emerging Technologies That Will Improve and or Ruin Everything. In the book, he tackles robotic construction projects, synthetic biology, and some other exciting stuff we didn't have time to get into. But we did have time to ask him about bioprinting. So here's Zach on what bioprinting is and how we do it. So there are a couple ways to do it. Uh, if, if you want a visual, one way it's done is very similar to the way we extrude plastic uh, for 3D printing. Only instead of plastic, you use what's called a biogel. You can imagine it, it, it isn't quite right, but it'd be sort of like if you imagine gelatin, but with cells suspended in it. Um, and the idea is you can make all sorts of cool structures this way. Uh, there's a slightly different method used by a guy named Jordan Miller that's really cool. And what they do is they essentially have... They do what's called sugar sintering. Sintering, uh, for people who don't know, is just like you use heat to make something melt into a solid. That's usually done on metal, but you can also do it on sugar. And the reason you do that for bioprinting is you can sinter the shape of a vein, right? A complex shape like that, a, an organic-looking complicated shape. And then you can spray vein cells around it, the cell mixture, and then they will actually form into veins you can use. And the reason that matters is that when you look at something like a liver, you know, it looks like a, a brown lump, but it's actually a really, 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 really complicated machine. And one way in which it's complex is that the vasculature inside it is like more complicated than any highway system in the world. And it's also in three dimensions. So if you want to have any hope of duplicating a liver, you've got to duplicate the vascular system or the thing will, you know, the liver will die. So that's, that's one way to do bioprinting. There are lots of different ways, but the basic idea is you can you know, make these biological structures like hearts, kidneys, corneas, flesh, and, you know, save a lot of lives. If you print using your printer in the office, you got to have an ink cartridge. What are the ink cartridges for bioprinting? <laughs> That's a very good question. So, you know, again, you look at a liver and it looks like it's a lump, and you might be like, what's made of liver cells? That's true. There's a variety of types of liver cells, and part of how they become the type they need to be is, is, is sort of complicated, like, like they receive a treatment in the body that tells them how to develop. Right. As, as you know, of course, all your cells have the same DNA, but they, you somehow have this diversity of cells. So it's like if you want an ideal machine that can print a liver, it has to not just be able to deposit the liver cells in the right place, but then they have to perhaps, I mean, this is one way it might work. Perhaps they have to receive some treatment as it comes out. So, you know, you, you know most 3D printers have just one color of, of filament. You have to imagine you have to have a whole lot of options for cells and then treatments that happen to the cells if you want to be able to make a, a 3D printed organ. But, of course, you know, the cool thing is you only have to solve that problem once, uh, and then we've got it. So uh, hopefully someday. Uh, the, the problem, uh, as you, you might imagine, is, of course, in your body, livers are not 3D printed, but they, they sort of develop slowly as they self-assemble. And so if you're 3D printing, you have to have this biogel that suspends the cells, but that's made of stuff that you don't need later. So it has to kind of find its way out of the liver and leave the cells in the right place. So you can see quickly there's a very complicated problem. Again, Zach Wienersmith is the man behind the popular geeky webcomic Saturday Morning Breakfast Serial. And you can dig into bioprinting and more in his new book, Soonish, 10 Emerging Technologies That'll Improve and or Ruin Everything. As always, you can find links to more from Zach in today's show notes. Imagine an underground city 18 stories deep 
with enough room to house 20,000 people. If you think this is some future city planned to escape an asteroid or global warming, you're wrong. In fact, we're digging into some history for this story. Picture this. It's 1963, and you're on a construction crew renovating a home. You bring your sledgehammer down on a soft stone wall, and it all crumbles away, revealing a large, snaking passageway so long that you can't see where it ends. This is the true story of how the undercity at Derinkuyu was discovered. Or rediscovered, technically. While those workers knew they'd found something special, they couldn't know just how massive their discovery had been. The underground city is more than 3,000 years old and comes with all of the necessities and a few luxuries. I'm talking fresh water, stables, places of worship, and even wineries and oil presses. And Derinkuyu is just one of about 40 underground cities in the area. They were made possible in the first place because there's a lot of tuff in the area. That's tuff like T-U-F-F. Tuff is a kind of volcanic rock that solidifies into something soft and crumbly, which makes it relatively easy to carve enormous subterranean passages into. And those passages were extremely well protected, thanks to massive rolling stone doors that block each floor off from the floor above. This tells us the inhabitants were clearly hiding from invading forces. The city contains elements of Hittite culture, but some scholars suggest the city may have come from the Phrygians, a tribe of Thracians who could have been hiding from Persians who were the next to take over the region. Either way, considering they've been used for centuries to hide from some threat, maybe it's a good thing nobody's living in them right now. Amateur aerial photography isn't as new and novel as you might think, because before we had drones, we had pigeons. Yes, I'm talking about pigeon cameras. And believe it or not, the pictures you got from pigeon cameras are pretty similar to the pictures you get from drones these days. If not for their grainy quality and black and white coloring, you might even have a hard time figuring out which photo came from a pigeon and which came from that little flying thing that's banned from most tourist locations around the world. In fact, pigeon cameras were so good, they eventually attracted interest from the military. So the invention of the pigeon camera dates back to 1907, when one of Dr. Julius Neubronner's carrier pigeons went missing. It showed up a few weeks later, but the German apothecary was very curious as to where it had been. He used pigeons for urgent deliveries to a nearby sanatorium a few miles from his home, so it was pretty important for his business to solve the puzzle. That's why he developed a small camera with some tiny shoulder straps that was attached to the bird's belly. The camera was equipped with a timer so that photos would be taken at regular intervals. When Neubronner presented his photographs to the public, people were amazed by images that were different from the balloon photography they were used to. There was something wild and spontaneous about their appearance that made them remarkably popular, much like drone photography and GoPro footage today. Neubronner's pigeon camera history doesn't merely end with pretty pictures, though. During World War I, Neubronner's camera-equipped pigeons were used for reconnaissance by the German War Department. This tactic didn't last very long, since pigeon photography was no match for the rapid improvements in airplane surveillance. But, legend has it, the CIA developed its own pigeon camera after World War II. Today, the Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. has a whole room dedicated to these high-flying spies. So the next time you admire aerial drone footage or selfies from a skydive, remember... Pigeons did it first. Before we recap what we learned today, here's a sneak peek at what you can catch this weekend on Curiosity.com. This weekend, you'll learn about how researchers may have found the missing evidence that explains the origins of life, an island within a lake on a volcano within a lake on an island, why the deadliest animal in the United States might surprise you, 
and more. Okay, so now let's recap what we learned today. Today we learned that bioprinting is super intricate and involves a lot more than just printing a big blob of mass. And that ancient civilizations built ancient underground cities to hide from invaders. And that amateur aerial photography was pioneered by a German apothecary with a little help from pigeons. I love the pictures of his pigeon cameras. They're like little backpacks that the pigeons are wearing, except they're like front-facing backpacks. It's cute. I want a pigeon camera. Join us again Sunday to learn something new in just a few minutes. In the meantime, have a great weekend. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Stay curious.